Well, good morning, everyone. So uh, this morning we're going to have a lesson on evangelism, um, and it might help to define uh, the term there. Uh, evangelism is just a word to convey the idea of bringing the gospel out to people who are lost, uh, who are separated from God. That really is the idea of evangelism covered in this word. Um, and before I go any further, I do want to um, say a word to Mikael about the lesson. So, El Sermon, Evangelization Eficaz. El Sermon de esta mañana trata sobre el tema de la evangelización, que es la labor de llevar el evangélico evangelio a las personas que están perdidas en su pecado. Vamos a aprender del ejem ejemplo de Jesús lo importante que es ver a la gente como Él lo hizo. Sentir lo que Él sintió por la gente y hacer la, lo que Él hizo, el amor, el mar a la gente. Uh, now, with this lesson, there's a lot of ways to talk about evangelism. Uh, there's the work of evangelism in terms of, you know, mechanically, like what are things we can say, what are things we can do. But with this lesson, I really want to think about really what's at the heart of evangelism. And that's why I've titled the lesson Effective Evangelism. I want you to think really quickly here, just as an introduction, what was evangelism to Jesus? Like, was evangelism for Jesus... Uh, like a light switch he would just turn on sometimes? Was it just an event that he would go to sometimes? Uh, think about this like with his disciples, you know, Peter and the other apostles and what we see in the book of Acts. What did they learn from Jesus about evangelism? You know, again, was it for them just an event they went to or a light switch they turned on? No, what they learned from Jesus and what we see in Jesus and in his closest disciples is really the idea of evangelism was at the core of who they were as people. It wasn't just a work they did sometimes. It wasn't just like a thing that they went to or a thing they invited people to. It was who they were at their core, right? And so with this lesson, I want to convey that, that evangelism is most effective not when it's just something we do sometimes, not when it's just something we invite people to, like a work that we invite people to, although Inviting people to things, you know, is very good, and God can use that for, you know, uh, use that for great purposes. But again, what evangelism should be to us is much more than that, though. Uh, so that's kind of the nature of, of this lesson. It's going to be a really challenging lesson. Uh, these are things that I've been wrestling with for a long time now, uh, really for months and months. Uh, they've really impacted me, and uh, this is definitely... You know, like every lesson should be like a me first lesson, you know, where I'm preaching to myself first and, uh, you know, teaching out of that perspective. But especially this lesson, this is most especially a me first lesson. Uh, these are things that I've been thinking about that I am genuinely struggling with. I'm not just saying this as like a, a preacher to make a point. Uh, I genuinely do really struggle with these things. So as I try to teach even very strongly on these things, I'm not just trying to say them strongly to you. They need to be said strongly for me, uh, and I'm, I'm really in this lesson inviting you to think about things that I recognize I need to grow in, and I just invite you to open your hearts to these things as well. So Romans 3, 9 through 18 is where we're going to start. 
Uh, en Miguel, uh, Romanos, capítulo 3, uh, versículos 9 uh, y uh, 18. Um, the reason we're in Romans 3 is really kind of following a process here. So, biblically, the nature of faith, biblically, is ultimately not just that we agree with the right information, right? That God says what is true and just kind of intellectually we accept what is true. Biblically, faith is so transcendently more than that. Biblically, faith does start ultimately with believing what God believes. But inevitably, where it's meant to go biblically, a sound faith is transformative. Biblically, faith is not sound. If believing what God believes doesn't mean or doesn't result in seeing like he sees, and then from that feeling what he feels, and from that seeking what he seeks, and then doing as he does, which ultimately makes us as he is, right? So we're in Romans 3 because ultimately I think effective evangelism begins with seeing what God sees, and especially with ourselves and with people with sin's condition. And I think as we talk about this, I hope you'll appreciate uh, how important, but also uh, how challenging this can be. So effective evangelism begins with seeing the reality of sin's condition as God sees it. And that's Romans 3, 9 through 18 here. So I'm going to read this again as Jim read for the scripture reading. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. And notice this, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands, there is none who seeks God. All have turned aside, together they have become useless. There is none who does good, there is not even one. Their throat is an open grave, with their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So I want to ask you a question about this is, do you believe this? You know, and it can be, I think, too easy in our hearts to say, you know, yeah, of course, that's what the Bible says. Of course I agree with that. But I want you to think, is, is this changing how you interact with people? Is this transforming the way that you see the world around you and people around you? You know, as we read this, as hard as this can be, this is describing even those people that we would prone to be prone to say, yeah, that's a good person. You know, I love being around that person. You know, this is describing our friends, our family, you know, whatever, our work colleagues who we laugh with, who we go out to lunch with, who we have, you know, very pleasant interactions with. Notice, we'll come back to this even in verse 9. You know, Paul's saying this of himself, of people universally, that the gospel deals with a reality of sin's condition that is beyond what we see. And again, we'll, we'll deal with these points more as we go on. But I want to ask this question. Is this how Jesus saw people? You know, and you don't need to turn to these passages. I'll just reference them really to help support the point here. Um, but did Jesus see people in this way? I would argue Jesus was never disillusioned about the nature of people he was interacting with in his ministry. You know, something is thrown in very quickly in Matthew 7, verse 11, as Jesus is advocating extreme love, as he's just about to say that the law and the prophets are summarized, treating your neighbor as yourself, he says this, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? 
Jesus just throws in, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. Who's he talking to in Matthew chapter 5, 6 and 7 in the sermon? At the beginning of Matthew 5, it's his disciples who have committed to learning his teaching and following him. And Jesus, even in that context of an audience of his disciples who are eagerly wanting to learn and apply his word, says, if you then being evil, as just a blanket statement of who he's talking to. Luke chapter 13, there's some people who come to Jesus and they have this radical story about the blood of some Galileans that Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And I'm not sure what they were meaning by bringing this to Jesus, But Jesus, in response, ultimately says, do you think those 18, for instance, on whom the Tower of Siloam fell, that they were worse sinners or worse culprits than everyone in Jerusalem? He said, I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus' point is, these people who suffer these weird fates or commit these heinous crimes, he said, do you think that they're worse culprits than all the people in Jerusalem? In the Old Covenant context, Jerusalem's where all the good righteous people were. That's where all the particularly religiously zealous people were located. And Jesus says, these people who commit these heinous crimes and suffer these extraordinary fates are just the same as even the most religious person, good-looking person in Jerusalem. Jesus in his ministry, his great love and his great kindness was rooted in a depth of mercy that is difficult to comprehend until we get this. Jesus wasn't kind to people because they warranted his kindness. Jesus wasn't around people because it was just an easy vacation-like experience to be around people. It was truly mercy, withholding a punishment due. It was gracious, giving what is not due. Jesus was motivated by a love that was not disillusioned by the reality of the condition of everybody around him. Jesus saw the world and saw people exactly like this. And so this is the point is the gospel exposes and deals with reality. It deals with reality in a way that we don't. Uh, It deals with the reality in a way that is difficult to really truly align our perspectives with. Um, I want you to think about this. The gospel is an extreme solution. Extreme solutions are for extreme problems. Is the cross an overreaction to the problem of sin? You know, the the cross isn't just, well, you're kind of bad. And so, yeah, the cross is like really serious, but that'll fix you too, even if you haven't messed up as bad as others have. That's not the message of the cross. Notice again, verse 9. This is what everybody, everybody's condition is in. The gospel exposes through a radical and extreme solution that the problem of sin is more extreme than we realize without God's righteousness exposing it. The gospel deals with reality and the gospel is an extreme solution to an extreme problem. The point is this. The problem of sin is so much more extreme in its corruption and consequence than what appearances can convey than what emotion or feelings of guilt can convey, or even what circumstances can convey. You know, even if a person hits rock bottom in their life, you know, let's just say for the sake of the point, it's somebody who through drug addiction and other promiscuous means, their life has really just crashed and burned. 
Even that person who's crashed and burned in some physical sense and have hit a rock bottom, the problem of sin from God's perspective is still more extreme than even what that physically conveys, right? The gospel deals with an extreme problem, and the cross is not God overreacting to our condition. It's God saying we are underreacting to an extreme problem. We are not thinking enough about how serious the problem is, how serious our condition is, right? So again, the gospel exposes whatever we think about the world and the people around us. Look back at verse 4. Let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. Who thinks the truth about the reality of sin? Do you? Do I? Or can we trust that when God says something to, that to us seems like, well, maybe not though, <laughs> who wins in that argument? You know, does my judgment win or does God's win the argument? Um, finally here, I think in practicality, how do we really begin to see things like this properly? I think it starts when we see this for ourselves. It's when we don't see this as true for ourselves, that's when we cannot see this as true for others as well. So verses 10 through 18, this is a series of quotes pulled in from a lot of different places, but it's particularly specific places. So it's about four quotes from different Psalms, all written by David, and then one quote from Isaiah in Isaiah 59. Did you know that David and Isaiah, when they were assessing, when they were analyzing the condition of the wicked, they would not say of others what they would not also first say of themselves. Look back at verse 9 again. Isn't that what Paul's doing? Is Paul saying as an apostle, as someone committed to the gospel, that now he's elevated above these nasty-sounding people? He's saying, no, I'm no better than the people that these scriptures are talking about. Paul says, me first, but not just me. This is the reality of the condition everybody is in under sin. When we lose touch with the kind of conviction that we ought to have, when we fail to maintain the kind of conviction we ought to have, that this is what God has rescued from, rescued us from, that this is who we truly are in all its filth and grittiness without God. When that stops mattering to us, we will lose any conviction we ought to have to evangelize with any urgency. We will lose a sense of compassion we should have on others, the kind of grace and mercy we ought to extend to others if we lose touch with the kind of humility and gratitude consistent with having this view first of ourselves. Last thing with this here, um, kind of going back to verse 4, is resolving this tension again of how we might think about ourselves or others around us when this does sound so much more extreme than what we would ever think, especially oftentimes when people appear to be very good. Think about this in terms of identity theft. In terms of identity theft. You know, so Jason and Marie just went on vacation. So imagine... Um, well. You know, maybe you would qualify that as a vacation. They, they traveled way up north, right? Imagine someone is Jason and Maria on vacation this past week. Somebody moves into Jason's house. And somehow they get a hold of his social security number, his bank account numbers. And they start buying things in his name, living in his house. Is that a problem Jason's going to want to resolve? 
You think that's going to be a problem when Jason comes back and someone's living in his house, especially if they've really messed it up. They've messed up his house. They've been buying things that are very expensive with his money. That's a problem that demands resolution, right? Does goodness belong to anyone except God? Gentleness, kindness, joy? Does that ultimately, do we have a right to those qualities apart from God? Here's how the gospel deals with reality as it is. Jesus' death teaches us that those things that bring our lives peace, notice in verse 17, the path of peace they have not known. Even Jewish people in chapter 2 who are just very religious and very good-looking, the path of peace they have not known. Because if goodness is not the result of a humble subjection to Jesus, that goodness is stolen. And that's a problem that is going to demand resolution one day. Because there is not one person who is good apart from God. And any apparent goodness we see in others does not belong to them and does not identify with them. That belongs to God, and they will be held accountable to God for it, right? Romans, in length, again, in chapter 2, deals with the problem that there would be some people who religiously, they seem to be good of themselves. And chapter 3, again, in length, deals with the fact that even those people who may seem to be good, without humble subjection to Jesus, that goodness is stolen. And there is no right that we have to those things in the condition of sin. Do you see what God sees with people? And if we saw people more like this, what would that do to the kind of urgency we would have to save people out of that condition? Turn to Luke chapter 12. So I'll say this again at the end of this next point. Seeing this through the lens of the gospel and salvation and the righteousness of God uh, does not make us intolerable curmudgeons. Uh, David was not an intolerable curmudgeon. You know, he wasn't going around saying like, oh, everybody's so nasty, everybody's so bad. That wasn't how the Apostle Paul was. That's not how Isaiah was. When we see these things, the righteousness of God, it compels a greater closeness and intimacy and practice of the love of God. So where this leads, though, is ultimately if we see what God sees, that leads to feeling as he felt. Luke chapter 12, 49 through 53. I'll mention what's on the board after we read this. So Jesus said, I have come to cast fire upon the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? Tell you no, but rather division. For from now on, five members in one household will be divided Uh, Three against two and two against three. They will be divided. Father against son and son against father. Mother against daughter and daughter against mother. Mother Mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. So Jesus felt the tension of sin. And he was willing to suffer for the sake of exposing the reality of that tension in his relationship with others as well. Um, And I want you to think about this. In verse... Uh, 51. Was Jesus's view that there's not enough peace on earth or that there's too much peace on earth? Have you ever thought about that? You know, you'd think that, of course, Jesus would want peace. You know, he'd want the world to have peace, cultures to have peace, families to have peace. And yet Jesus himself would say, I did not come to bring peace on earth. I came to bring division. 
And if you go in verse 49, I came to cast a fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. Listen. What Jesus shows us is there's no comfortable way to deal with sin. There's no comfortable way. There's no easy way. There's no convenient way to deal with sin. Did you know, for example, that sin is an intensely violent problem and that the only way for sin to end and be resolved is through violence? That might sound weird, but that is the gospel. You know, in the Old Testament, there is an unbroken thread of unending, unresolved violence that has no solution. How did Jesus deal with that? How did Jesus put that unending violence to an end? By suffering violently. What's going to be the outcome of people who do, who do not subject themselves to the gospel? As hard and uncomfortable as it is to think about and to swallow that pill, it's eternal violence. God is going to exercise a very real wrath against people who have not subjected themselves to his gospel. There is no end to the problem of sin except through violence. The point I'm getting to is not that we need to like be violent to people. It's just that we've got to come to terms with the fact that evangelism is an uncomfortable work, right? I think oftentimes what we want, what I want, is I want... <laughs> people to be saved as comfortably for me as possible. You know, that I have to say as little as I need to say about God, say as little as I need to say about any controversial truth. Hopefully, magically, they're just going to connect the dots themselves as I just like barely point them in the direction of God's word. But the reality is there's no comfortable way to do it, right? This is not a work where we're going to be able to just do it conveniently, right? Someone has to get uncomfortable, the person who's dealing with sin is going to have to get uncomfortable. And we're not going to be able to help anyone get out of sin if we are not ourselves willing to suffer a little social discomfort by actually just bringing up the truth and bringing up the gospel to people. And so I want you to think, when does a person become motivated to solve any problem? And I want to illustrate it this way. Last year when Eve and I went to Minnesota to visit my family, um, my nephew... He's eight, I believe. Uh, I'm, I'm actually really bad at keeping up with their ages. Uh, it makes me a really bad uncle. Anyway, he's doing uh, pretty advanced math for his age. Maybe it's normal. But anyway, so he was doing like long division and multiplication. So he presented me with a long division problem. And of course, as soon as he writes it, I immediately know I cannot do this. <laughs> it's like just a simple problem. But, you know, long division, that's so far behind me. You know, I use a calculator for all the math that I do. And he presented me a multiplication problem. His thought was, well, if you can't do long division, you know, here's a multiplication. Well, I can't even do that, right? I, I'm one of those millennials dependent on calculators, right? But that's no big deal, right? I can't do these problems. That doesn't really matter to me. I move on. I laugh. It's no big deal. That's not the kind of problem we're dealing with with the gospel, right? This is a relationship problem. For those of you who, well, I'm going to illustrate this with my marriage. Um, when there's tension in my marriage, that cannot be ignored. And if there's, and I mean like real tension, like serious tension. If there's tension in my marriage, I can't concentrate on anything else properly until that's resolved. 
You know, there's times where I might have to, you know, Eve and I are going through something and it's tense and I've got to go to a Bible study or something. Um, and even when I'm with someone else, it's in the back of my mind that there's this serious problem that we've got to work out, right? And when I go home to Eva, we've got to work this thing out. Relationship problems, when it's a relationship that matters, that matters as a problem that needs to be solved. If even it's just one person who is feeling an intensive tension in the relationship, that is a problem that cannot be ignored. God feels the reality of the weight of a person's sin. Even as they're living their delusion of peace and happiness, we need to think more about God's side of things. The tension of sin is a reality. And the illusion that we can be peaceful and live a full life and just have joy and be pleasant and be separated from God is a lie. And there are people who are living life with a lot of joy who, again, are going to go to hell. So there's no easy application to how to apply these principles. But I'll tell you this. The most evangelistic people I've ever known in my life, and I don't mean preachers. I mean people who worked nine-to-five jobs and had families. The most evangelistic people I've ever met, they got this. The way that they thought about their situation, and I've, I've tried to adapt this, um, in part by learning it from others who have thought this way. Anyway, the most evangelistic people I've ever met, they would think, here I am in the world, in my city, in my culture, and everybody around me is going to hell. And here I am, someone who knows the truth, who can help people get out of that position. What does God hope I'm going to do about that problem? From God's perspective, what is he hoping that this real Christian here, living in a culture surrounded by people who are going to hell, from God's perspective, what is he earnestly hoping is going to happen there? Let me tell you, that has motivated a lot of people I know to be very diligent, not to quit their jobs and become crazy people or anything like that. But what this results in is trying and just caring and doing what you can and just seeking God's help and seeking his wisdom because of realizing how much this matters. No matter what time you have, no matter how much ability or sphere of influence you think you have, none of those things matter as much as these principles and how inevitably when these things are applied, they will result in something. Again, not that this will turn you into a crazy curmudgeon, you know, having unpleasant conversations with everyone all the time or anything like that. It just means this will inevitably result in evangelism happening in your life, period. The problem, I think, is too often we fear the tension that truth would bring into relationships that we really value. I think the problem ultimately like with this is the gospel, honestly, is just not real to us if this is the case. You know, I want you to imagine for a second that you're having a conversation with Jesus and he's on the cross and you approach him and you say, Jesus, you know, I know you went through all of this, but man, I'm just scared of how this coworker of mine, friend or relative would react if I brought this up to them. So would you mind if I just didn't? Can you imagine having that conversation with Jesus? 
you know, think about what he would say in response to that. I'm sure he would leave very convicted and ashamed. Um, again, just too often, you know, the gospel is just not real to us. You know, we fear the tension, and, and I fear. This is a problem I have again. And I've had to pray and pray and pray and pray. God, give me courage and give me courage. And I, I make up these scary scenarios in my mind, and I find that every time I speak the truth to someone that I, I'm afraid to bring up, it's like this weight is lifted off my shoulders. And I'm so thankful to God that he helped me do that. You know, we just have to be honest about our fears and just give our mind room to deal with that fear and reason through it without being so crippled by it. So again, the gospel just needs to become more real to us and we just need to be more honest with why we struggle to say simple things and to not just deal with the tension that it would be causing in these relationships. And lastly, with this, if we suffer tension for bringing up the truth, doesn't that make us more like Jesus? Isn't that just a way that we will be more attached to Jesus and understand him better and find greater refuge in him and just have a, a greater sense of commitment to his ministry? So finally, this ultimately results in doing as Jesus did. Turn to Luke chapter 14. This is one of the most powerful but also convicting passages from Jesus on evangelism in my mind. Uh, Luke 14, 12 through 14. The context of this, Jesus is dining with a Pharisee, and Luke's gospel has a bunch of unique encounters like this that are only in Luke. So like Luke 7, at the end of the chapter, Jesus dines with a Pharisee in his house. It's only in Luke. And that's where a woman comes, cries on his feet, and makes things awkward, and Jesus points out the woman of the Pharisee, et cetera, et cetera. Luke chapter 11, Jesus dines with the Pharisee. Doesn't go well again. He rebukes not only the Pharisee, but all the other Pharisees who are there too, and the lawyers of the Jewish law who are there. That becomes very tense. Well, this is no different. Uh, this is another dinner or lunch or whatever that Jesus' presence. I don't know if the Pharisees were just trying to have like a nice time with Jesus and feel really important because the great teacher is in their house. But Jesus has a habit of causing tension in these meals and saying what needs to be said. Well, kind of in the middle of this, in verse 12, Jesus has a word for the one who invited him. And here's what it is. And he also went on to say to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed since they have they do not have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. All right. Evangelism is ultimately effective when we develop Jesus's extreme and genuine love for people. Jesus's very extreme, very genuine love for people. You know, in this instruction here, there's no gimmicks. There's no programs. There's no artificial things. And it's also not just seeing people as prospects or projects. This is just simply learning to very genuine love people in ways that would never be possible except for Jesus' example and instruction to do so. Well, I want to take a moment to imagine the reality of what Jesus says here. So I imagine just, you know, some person actually doing this and what this would entail. So you notice in verse 13, or verse 12 rather, 
in the list of people who's, who you're not supposed to invite, notice the first category of person. You're not supposed to invite your friends. So basically in verse 13, the people who are being invited now, who are they? They're strangers. So you imagine this person in this instruction that they're going out and looking for people that they don't already know, that they're not already friends with. And what kind of people is he looking for? Well, imagine that he goes and he finds somebody who's blind. How's a blind person going to get to his house? Well, he's going to have to lead them. You imagine when he sits the blind person down and says, okay, wait here. And he goes and what's the next kind of person he finds? Someone crippled, someone lame. Well, what are you going to have to do with them? You're going to have to carry them or put them on a wagon or a horse or mule or something, right? So they're going to be some work to get back there. And then you've got the poor here as well. And you have to imagine, are these people going to understand social etiquette? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> Get the sense that these are like the social outcasts that people aren't really paying much attention to. You imagine these are very clean people, you know, that they don't know social etiquette. I imagine they're not very clean. So it's like, oh, no, you know, they're going to get your house a little dirty. You know, maybe they're going to say some things that will make you uncomfortable. Well, have you ever been somewhere that was way too nice and it made you uncomfortable being there? And although you may have enjoyed your time, it was kind of funny how nice it was and you couldn't wait to leave, right? And get back into like your normal place. So that's probably the case for this person inviting these people. Well, how is he going to make them comfortable? He's going to have to get to know them. He's going to have to do some work in talking to them. He's going to have to work really hard to not make them feel weird or out of place. Because obviously the point of this is not to have them all leave and as you're cleaning up like, oh boy, that was... So rewarding, you know, that I was able to do this. I imagine that this is tiring. This is exhausting. This is not self-rewarding. And you even see that in the nature of what Jesus says. If I can get back to the right page. At the end of verse 12, you know, God forbid they repay you at all, right? So you're not doing this because you're expecting some sense of reward or some physical reward or some pat on the back or some compliment by the people. The person here is only giving Giving, giving, giving. Why would you do this? Is the gospel real to us? Why would you do this? Brandon read it in the uh, Lord's Supper reading. Jesus said in Luke twenty-two twenty-seven, For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? I am among you as the one who serves. You know how that becomes real? And not just information in the Bible we say, oh, great, or oh, yeah, that's true. This is how that becomes real. This is how the gospel really becomes real to us. The problem is the inst- this instruction is very extreme, right? This demands great patience. You know, I believe we should invite people to gospel meetings. But I don't know if you've noticed, but there aren't multitudes of people being converted or even coming in our community to gospel meetings, right? I'm not saying that's discouraging. We should still invite people. But I'm just saying this method of reaching people is far more Christ-like and demands so much more patience with people. It demands a greater commitment to the highest principles of both Jesus' example, his teaching, his ministry. This demands what Jesus would teach for discipleship. Not that we're trying to just have as comfortable a life as we can possibly have, but rather that we are really serious about taking up our cross and following him. 
even willing to lose our own life in the process in intimate ways. All right. The danger of a passage like this is it's so extreme and so far beyond anything that I'm doing or I've ever done that it just washes over me and it's gone. It takes great care, it takes great commitment to funnel, funnel might be the wrong word, to refine a passage like this into something that does eventually become personable and approachable for me, right? It takes work to not just let go of the passage because it's really scary thinking about doing something like this. It's really extreme and strange and out of my comfort zone. Jesus is merciful. He takes the little that we contribute and he makes much of it. Can you spend your lunchtime with a coworker who is a stranger to you and just talk to them and spend time with them? Can you decide once a month you'll go out of your way to talk to a neighbor you would never otherwise talk to? Can you once a month or once every six months, once a year, open your dinner, your, open your dinner time to inviting someone over you would not usually invite, even if that's a brother or sister in Christ? It's when we don't even care to refine this into something applicable for us, the gospel is not real enough to us. This is what it looks like for the gospel to be real. Why was evangelism so intense and effective in the first century? I would argue it's not because they had all sorts of amazing church ministries they were advertising and inviting people to. It's because they saw people like God did. They really did. It's because they felt what Jesus felt when he thought about sinners in his ministry. And it's because they loved people like Jesus did. Not just because they came to events, but that's just who Christians were in the way they loved people in their own intimate ways and in their own time. God help us to apply these things. Again, I know that this lesson is very challenging. I, I, I completely understand that. Um, we got to think about it. This is what it really means for the gospel to be real to us. Well, uh, I'll say a word of prayer for these things, for us to apply these things. And then afterwards, we can stand and sing the invitation song.